Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. I want you to grab your Bibles. How many people have a physical Bible with them today? We just hold it up. We're not going to do a sword drill, but remember sword drills where you actually held them up at the air. Wave it around. I want to hear the paper. Let's turn to the book of Romans. If you have a virtual Bible, why don't you hold it up right now too? Hold up your virtual Bible if you've got a device. Good for you. Okay. Oh, my screen wants to undo something because I shook my iPad. Um, Turn to the book of Romans. I want us to think... uh, about something God says to us through the book, the whole book, I believe, of Romans. And I think the question for us to start with today would be this. Is the gospel actually good news? Have you ever wondered that? Is the gospel actually good news? I saw a headline recently which was, is Christianity actually good for our world? That's a fair question. People debate the issue. There's a book written about the subject where... A couple of minds debate and go back and forth for and against the idea of Christianity being good for the world. You probably should have an answer in your own soul for that. Is Christianity actually good for the world? Is the gospel actually good news? Before we begin reading from the book of Romans, I just want to give a bit of introductory information about it. It's written by a fellow who was known as the Apostle Paul. Most of you have maybe heard of Paul He famously uh, led many churches, pioneered many churches in the ancient world, wrote important letters to them, many of them showing up in scriptures, in the Bible here. And for maybe some who didn't know this, when we start at Romans and go through the letters of Paul in the New Testament, they go in order of, does anybody know? Longest to shortest. And Romans is the longest, so it's It's the first of Paul's letters in the New Testament. So it's his lengthiest work. Some would say it's maybe one of his most important works. And I want us to consider a little bit about why he may have written it. There is a reason why God wanted the message of Romans to come to us. And Paul would have been aware of that. But there was something else going on in Paul's world that caused him to realize writing this letter to a church in Rome was a good idea. At the time of its writing, Paul is on his third major missionary journey. His major missionary journeys took him from a place called Antioch and then throughout the known world for the most part. And at this point, Paul is in, a, in the area of Corinth. Some of you have read the letters to the Corinthians, so he's in that kind of area. And he's wanting to send correspondence to the church in Rome. Why? Well, for most of his ministry, his home base has actually been in Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the known world. There was 500,000 people that lived there. The church that had started there was exploding into wonderful, wonderful life. And that was Paul's sort of missions base. That was his home church. They raised resource to send him and others on mission efforts around the world. But Paul is sensing something now. There is a shift going on. God is up to something again and again and again, and his gospel must must reach further and further. And so he's contemplating moving his home base from Antioch to Rome. Now, Rome is the largest city in the world. At this time, there's about a million people there. We know that there was five house churches in Rome at this time, and there was probably a hundred or so Christians in all of Rome, in the city of Rome at that time. 
And here's the thing, Paul wants to send them a message, but he's never been there as a church leader. Somebody else started the churches in Rome. Most of the churches you hear about in the New Testament, Paul was responsible for starting, but not the one in Rome. Now he's thinking about moving his home base from Antioch to Rome, but he doesn't have a lot of relationship with the Christians there. So it's important that he writes something to introduce himself to them. And because there was already a bit of confusion circulating among the early Christians about, well, who's actually a legitimate leader in the church, Paul decided to send an important message that would affirm his role in church leadership. And how did he do it? By writing about the gospel. He knew that if this gathering of five home churches in Rome were to, to read this letter, the book of Romans, which expounds beautifully on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it would resonate with those first believers there, and they realized this is the same gospel message we heard preached to us. We can trust Paul. So today, we're not reading the whole of Romans. That would take far too long. But I want us to spend a little bit of time in the introduction and the conclusion. And what we find is that there's discussion about the gospel in the introduction, and there's discussion about the gospel in the conclusion. In fact, that's where we find the word gospel appearing in the book the most, in the introduction and the gospel, or in the conclusion. And then in the middle, the meat and potatoes of the book is actually the gospel being unpacked in Paul's way at that time. So turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Right now, we open our hearts to you. and We welcome the sound of your spirit speaking to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Here's how Paul begins. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who was to his, uh, who, who as to whose, who as to his human nature, there we go, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. How? By his resurrection. Could everybody say resurrection? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Skip down to verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in times of prayer at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. You hear the longing in his heart. Like, I'd really like to meet you. I'd like to be among you. I long to see you, verse 11, so that I may impart to you a spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And go forward now with me to verse 16. Such a hinge point for the introduction. In fact, this is the theme statement for the whole book of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because, why? It is the power of God for the salvation or the rescue of everyone who believes. What does God want to say to us today through the 
book of Romans. As you read Romans devotionally, whenever you read that book next, what is he saying to us through this book? I think there are two primary things that we must give our attention to, and the first is this. Number one, Christians need the gospel. Isn't it interesting? I mean, he's writing to about 100 Christians in these five home churches, and he writes his longest letter, and what is it? The gospel. Well, didn't they already hear it? Isn't that how they were saved? Yes. But he knows they need to hear it and hear it again and hear it again and hear it again. We forget, don't we? We need to be reminded of it. We need to remind one another of it. And so Paul goes to great length to explain the multidimensional wonder of God's gospel message. Now, a fair question might be at this point, uh, well, what is the gospel? The gospel in its Greek origin, that word gospel comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which means good news, which, you know, should mean there's a fair question for us as we talked about earlier, is the gospel actually good news? Some of us have grown up in environments where when the gospel was presented, it felt more like bad news than good news. So is it actually good news? Now, one of the ways we as a church family have learned to think about the gospel is this idea of the story of God and five trees. If you were with us a year ago, we spent the whole fall season looking at five significant trees that appear in Scripture, front to back, that tell an important story of God's work in our world and with humanity. And as we understand these five trees, what happens is, <coughs> excuse me, we gain a better understanding of the whole message of Scripture, and we gain a clearer perspective of what the whole gospel message is. So today, I want to just spend a few moments reminding you of the gospel through the five trees. The first tree that we see in Scripture is what? The tree of life. We find it right away early on in our origin story. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we find a couple trees early on, and they're vitally important for understanding the whole of the gospel message. The first tree is the tree of life. When you think of our origin story, Genesis 1 and 2, I want you to remember, if you can, three words. Gift, middle, and choice. Gift, middle, and choice. Life is a gift. You and I have not conjured up life. Humanity is doing its very best right now to create everything possible, like AI, artificial intelligence, but as much as you can make scientifically or whatever, philosophically, AI beings, you cannot give them life because there is one and one alone who has the authority and ability to give life, and it is God. He breathed it into Adam's nostrils in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he put in the middle of the garden a tree, a gift, so that humanity would have ongoing access to his source and supply of life. Daryl Johnson says this, God gives the tree of life, which offers an unending supply of the life that God has and the life that God is to people. Life is a gift. The tree of life is where 
sort of on the peripheries of the garden, outside of the garden. No, it's in the very middle. That's such an important message for us. God's gift of life. God himself is at the middle. Nothing else at the center of your life will continue to give you life. People give themselves to all kinds of things in this world, many times with the hope that somehow it will be life-giving to them. And we're, you know, we're used to hearing about this. It's easy to pick off sort of the, the evil and the wicked things and the power-mongering and the addictive kind of things that people get themselves into, hoping that somehow that can rescue or save or supply life to them. But guess what? There's other great things in life. Listen, if you're hoping for your spouse and your marriage to ultimately be life-giving to you, it won't be. Your spouse and your marriage cannot resuscitate you when you're dead. I love fly fishing. I've had the opportunity to do some again recently. It is life-giving to me. But when I lay in a grave with my sage rods right beside me, <laughs> they cannot resurrect me. As life-giving as it is for me to do that. You think about your hobbies or what gives you a sense of life. Do it. Keep doing it. And guess what? As you're doing those good things, God is alongside you. But those things cannot give you life. They're not at the middle. God and God alone. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. Gift, middle, and choice. Why choice? There was a tree that they had the choice to go to and eat from. It meant that they could choose if they wished not to go eat from it and disconnect from the source of life. Choice matters massively to God. Why? Because relationships matter. And that leads us to the second tree. It appears in the first two chapters of Genesis as well. What's that tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So essentially, if you know the story, in the garden we have a tree of life and then a tree of death. Another way we might look at it is one of the trees, the tree that's at the middle, the tree of life, is a tree of dependence. It's us realizing I cannot supply life. Only God can, so I choose to go to him, eat from his tree of life. I am dependent upon him. But choosing not to eat from that tree is a way of saying, I'm going to be independent. So there's a tree of dependence, and then a tree of independence. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a tree of death. It is a tree of independence. <clears throat> For our purposes when we talk about the five trees, and by the way, if you're newer to our church in the last few months and you've wondered, why do I see five trees in the lobby or if I go downstairs into the fellowship hall where the kids hang out, I see five trees up there. What does that mean? This is that. The second tree, the first tree we call the tree of life. The second tree when we talk about the five trees is a tree of freedom. But it's a, different, a bit of a different way of thinking about freedom. I think the reason that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the garden is so that God could present us with choice, so that God could be in relationship with you and I. You see, he did not want to create robots and force us into a paradise prison and an enforced relationship with him. We are not his hostages in Eden, and he's secretly hoping we all get Stockholm Syndrome and grow an attachment to him somehow. He gives us a choice. He says, I am the center. I'm the one who supplies life. But if you do not want relationship with me, if you want to do it your way, you can. That's a gutsy kind of freedom. But freedom is essential to all relationships, isn't it? The moment 
freedom is taken out of a relationship, it's a violation of love, which is a violation of relationship. Danny Silk, the author, says this, without the freedom to reject him, we are powerless to choose him. Freedom is what makes relationships possible. So we have a tree of life. We have a tree of freedom. Now, if you followed the story in Scripture, what does humanity inevitably and eventually choose? Independence. Now, many of us grew up in contexts where we've heard this story and we're like, maybe you're like me and my kids have done this too. When they hear the story, they're like, if I get to have a boy, I'm going to talk to Adam and Eve because they sure messed this up for all of us. But I think the older we get, most of us start realizing, oh, that's me. I do that. I've chosen to eat of the tree of independence. And there's consequences. God, being the good and loving Father, outlined them to humanity. He said, listen, if you want to eat from this tree, here's what happens. Death. I don't think God was threatening it, saying, hey, you better stay with me because no death. He was saying, if you choose your own way, you can, but you do not supply your own life. It means you will die. And humanity opted for it then, and if you and I are honest, we all opt for it in a major way and in minuscule sort of momentary ways throughout life. Humanity chooses independence. <clears throat> and the harmony and beauty and goodness and life of original creation unravel into the thistles and thorns of decay, brokenness, corruption, evil, and ultimately death. So what is God going to do? He sees humanity exercise their option for freedom and independence. So he pulls out his mighty smiter and smushes them and that's the end. No, he folds his arm in disinterest and says, okay, have it your way. No. God doesn't give up on his people. The good news of the Bible begins unfolding very rapidly. As soon as humanity has made its own decision, God goes to work to try to, to, try to make a way and to ultimately make a way for us to be redeemed and for the world to be renewed. In Genesis chapter 12, all the way through 18, you read about God at work near a tree in a place called Mamre. This is the third tree. With a certain fellow, and what's his name? Abraham. And what is God doing? He's seeking to form a covenant family. In the midst of the corruption and brokenness of humanity in the world, God has not given up on the world, but he wants to enter into relationship with humanity to begin changing the world and repairing it. Theologian N.T. Wright says this, if God made the world and still rules it, why do bad things happen? Is God going to do anything about it? The biblical answer is yes, of course, God will do what is required to put it to right. God calls out, a single family and enters into a love-binding agreement with them. This agreement, often called a covenant, doesn't mean they are the only people God loves or wants to rescue. Rather, it means that the way God has chosen to bring his rescuing justice to the world, the way he intends to put everything to rights, is by calling this one family, the people of Abraham, to be the bearers of his plan to rescue the rest of the world as well. 
And so God enters into a significant covenant relationship with Abraham and his family, and he promises to bless him. Now, in the ancient world, covenants and faithfulness, I mean, was massively important. If you entered into a covenant relationship with someone, you needed to follow it up with faithfulness. And through especially the Old Testament, the whole way of the Old Testament, some of you may sometimes wonder, how do I read the Old Testament? Is there a major theme that keeps unfolding? Once you get past Genesis 12 through 18, keep your eyes open for the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, because God remains in covenant with people, even when his people behave as if they weren't in covenant with him. He is faithful. Friends, that's, I think, some good news to humanity because I think many of us in this room seem to think that we're in a covenant relationship with God and at times struggle in that relationship. And what's God's nature? What's his heart? What's his way like? Faithfulness to us. God initiates covenant with Abraham. It's his way of saying, I'm giving myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently, and I will back this up with my life. In the ancient world, there was a custom that if two kings or other parties were coming into a covenant agreement with each other. It's a bit morbid, but this is how they would do it. They would take a few animals, cut them in half, split them apart, and they would walk between the animals. Once the terms of the covenant or agreement was settled, they would walk between the dead animals and recite the terms of the agreement and essentially say, if I do not fulfill my end of this, may I be like these animals. It's their way of saying, I'm backing this up with my life. And so we read in the story of Abraham that God and Abraham have a covenant just like this. Animals are separated. And when you read the story, you discover God walks through one time. And it's his way of saying, listen, if I don't fulfill my part of this, may I die. But what we find out is that Abraham never walks through it. He's asleep. The presence of God passes through a second time. It's God's way of saying, and if you do not fulfill your part of this covenant, may it be to me as it is here. And God recites before humanity that if you don't fulfill this, I'm willing to take your punishment. Wow. And then you, I mean, the Old Testament is long. (laughs) And there's a lot of human failure in it, isn't there? And what is the massive theme that stands out? God is faithful to his people. Wow. I mean, that's good news for you and I. He's faithful. God promises his faithfulness and backs it up with his life and then demonstrates it, doesn't he? The fourth cross, fourth tree is what? It's a cross. In the Gospels, four times we read the account of God himself subjecting himself to the worst kind of human suffering and punishment in that day. Why? To demonstrate something to speak a message of something. You see, the reality is our independence against God has grave consequences, doesn't it? You and I are deserving of death. But at the cross, not only is God demonstrating his faithfulness, he's demonstrating and gesturing in the most powerful and profound way, I forgive you. Listen to how Brian Zond says it. The cross is both ugly and and beautiful. It's as ugly as human sin and as beautiful as divine love. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the sin that was violently sinned into him, refusing to call for 12 legions of retaliation. Instead, 
Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. With this act of radical forgiveness, Jesus broke the bloody cycle of violent revenge. Jesus shed his own blood instead of the blood of his enemies. How many of you are thankful today for God's forgiveness demonstrated through the cross? That's the fourth tree. But there is a fifth. If you've seen the icons that we use when we demonstrate the five trees, the fifth one looks oddly familiar, doesn't it? It sure looks a lot like which one? The first one. Why is that? Because in Revelation chapter 22, in the culmination of all things, which is really a new beginning, what do we find? The tree of life reappears. And in Revelation chapter 22, God says something astounding from the throne. He says this, behold, which means look at this. You've got to see this. I am making all things new. In the Bible, God has said that he will make all things new. And in the Bible, God shows that he will make all things new. And how has he shown that he will make all things new? When some certain people heard rumors on the morning of the Sunday after Jesus was resurrected or after he had died, they heard that there was a commotion and something. So they went to a tomb and they went in and an angel was there and said these powerful words. He's not here. He has Risen. God has shown us that he's committed to making all things new by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 says this, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Friends, there's massive implications for you and I because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, or 6 says this, we are therefore buried with him through baptism and into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like he is, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. First Peter 1.3 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. N.T. Wright said this, the risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set right. Jesus is therefore the one through whom everything else will be set right. Tim Keller said this, suffering is a reminder to this, uh, is a reminder this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Many of us ask often, why is there still suffering? Because the full implementation of Jesus' finished work at the cross and of his resurrection and God's work of making all things new is not fully implemented yet. So suffering, when we experience it, is a reminder that the world is not yet completely all the way it's supposed to be. And embedded in that, I think for us, is more good news. Because if the fifth tree of the five trees is a tree of renewal, God making all things new by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's massive implications for you and I. Friends, as you think about your life or your circumstances, if there is something that's broken, God wants to renew it. If there is something that is hurting inside of you, God wants to renew it. 
If there is something that is disordered, God wants to renew it. If there is something that is suffering, God wants to renew it. If there is something that's in chaos, God wants to renew it. Somehow, I don't know why this came to mind during worship, but during one of the songs, I thought about my grandparents. I have three grandparents who are still living. Two of them, my mom's parents, have been in care for several years, and they're many years deep into dementia, very deep into dementia. And they've lived robust, full, wonderful lives. My grandma turned 91 just recently. And they love Jesus. And it's hard to see them trapped the way they are in their present state. But I know God wants to renew it. And of course, I would love for that to happen in this lifetime for them. But I have this hope that when they pass, they will be renewed. And so what's our posture in this life? I think it's to echo the prayer Christ taught us to pray. Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We keep praying for his realities that are in heaven to keep coming towards earth. And when they don't show up in their fullness in this life, we have this hope. They are coming. He will renew it. Death isn't final. Jesus has the final word. Life is final. It has the ultimate authority and the ultimate voice to speak over anything. Friends, God wants to renew things. Is this good news? Oh, it's good news. Is the gospel actually good news? It actually is good news. So what does God want to say to us through the book of Romans? Well, that was point one. And you're thinking, but the band's up there. Point two is fast. (laughs) Point one, you need the gospel. Point two, people who don't know Jesus yet need the gospel. Friends, if this is good news for us and it's still good news for us, there are 80,000 people who live within about 20 minutes of this building who live seconds from your door, seconds from your office or your classroom or where you play volleyball or disc golf or whatever you do, who are living in a vacuum absent of this kind of hope. Flip quickly with me to the final two chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 23. That's the conclusion of Romans. It starts there and it lasts for a chapter and a half. I'm just going to read something. For some of you, if you were here on our mission Sunday in February, you heard me speak from this. And I just want to remind you of this again. Listen to verse 23. Paul's now landing the plane in his letter to the Roman church. He says, but there, uh, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. Remember he was moving his home base from Antioch. He wanted to move it to Rome. So he's in Corinth at the time. He's like, my work here, it's, I'm sensing it's done. And since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Well, doesn't that sound nice? Paul's taking a holiday. He's not taking a holiday. He mentions Spain one more time a little later in the same chapter. Listen to what he says. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a little while. So Paul wants to move his home base to Rome. He wants to establish a relationship with a new sort of home-based church. 
And then he's essentially asking them, would you support me to go on this missions trip? I must go to Spain. Hmm. Why does he want to go to Spain? It's not a holiday. In the ancient world of Paul's day, Rome sort of ruled everything. And Paul was thinking about, how far has the gospel gone north? And he checked it off. He thought, the gospel's moving north very far and effectively. Is the gospel going south, Paul thinks to himself? Yes. He knows of Christian leaders heading into Africa with the gospel message. Wow. Is the gospel going east? Yes, he's aware. The gospel is going east through the highways that are connected through Asia Minor. Check. East, check. South, is the gospel going west? Paul has no answer. And he's starting to realize, my work over here, I think it's done. But nobody's gone west yet. In the Roman world, Spain was as far west as anybody could go in the whole world. And Paul's aware of that. He's aware the gospel hasn't got there yet. Somebody's got to go to Spain. And the reality is, there's a lot of Spain still left in the Comox Valley, isn't there? How many streets in the Comox Valley have not heard that God wants to renew things? How many streets in the Comox Valley have not felt God's renewal work already pushing in around them? How many workplaces, how many offices, how many classrooms have not yet heard that God wants to renew it? Have not yet felt that God wants to renew it? The final words of Romans are this, beginning in verse 25 chapter 16. Now, to him who is able to establish you by the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that what? All nations! Paul's thinking of Spain and if there's any other nations, he's thinking of them then too. That they might believe and obey him to the only wise God glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, this fall, God wants to renew lives and situations here in the Comox Valley. This fall, God wants to renew lives and situations in your neighborhood. This fall, he wants to renew lives and situations where you work, where you go to school, where you play. This fall, God wants to renew lives and situations through the DNA relationships that you have with others in this church family, through the coffee clubs and life groups, through the pop-up groups that will be starting in just a few weeks, he wants to renew lives. This fall, God wants to renew lives and situations through our youth ministry. Yes, through, even through junior youth and senior youth, through our kids' ministry. He wants to renew lives through the ministries of our church, through those who serve in our church, through you and your devotional life. God wants to renew things this fall. So what do you do? Would you, when I was up early this morning praying for you, my prayer was this, that when you heard the gospel again, there would be some of you who just a real hope sparked up again, or maybe even for the first time. Would you trust that God wants, if you're in a difficult circumstance, if you're facing something awful, God wants to renew it. Just trusting that will help you in the journey ahead. And then would you partner with him in works of renewal in this world? Would you stand with me? I want to ask you one final question, and it's this. When you think of the five trees and God's work 
What stands out to you about his heart as expressed through these five trees? What stands out to you about his nature, his ways? What stands out to you about Jesus through these five trees? I'll tell you, for me, I get this, I just keep coming back to this idea. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to. But he kept choosing to give life and then to give freedom and to be faithful. And then he chose to give his life on a cross. And then he chooses to make all things new. He didn't have to, but that says something about his heart and his love. As we conclude today, I'm going to invite our prayer ministry team to come and make themselves available at the frontier right away. Some of you would be so helped by having somebody pray with you for God's renewal to come towards whatever your circumstance or situation is. One of the best ways to welcome his renewing work is through partnering in prayer with others. In a moment, we're going to head outside and enjoy some churros and good coffee. Uh, it's name tag Sunday as well. If you missed, if you ducked around the name, I don't usually like name tags either, but I'm going to wear mine. You put your name on it. How long have you been at CPC? And then a hobby that you have. Are there the gift cards? I think there's some secret gift cards hidden among some people. So if you talk to enough people, especially about hobbies, if you find some people with the same hobbies as you, I think there's three gift cards that are just sort of secretly being handed out. So have a lot of good conversations, but don't use that as a motive to be surfacy with people. Okay? Like, get into a conversation with them and don't move on too fast. But I dare you, find three people who have a very similar hobby to yours. Laura is the one who has the gift cards. And if you meet... If you meet, I think it's just the way, sympathy for the boot. She's like, oh, yeah, come talk to me. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> um, if you... Yeah, no, 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 here's how it works. You have to find three people who are newer to the church. They've been part of the church for less than six months, and they have a similar hobby to yours. If you found those people, uh, and you give those names to Lord, and they have to be real people, this is before God. Can't make it up. And you tell Laura, and there might be a gift card for you. Okay, if you're at home and you're like, I didn't get to take part in Name Tag Sunday, take a picture of yourself, post it a line, put your name, your how long you've been at CPC, and your hobby, and we'll like it later, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our wonderful church family. Thank you for churros. Thank you for coffee. Bless all the above, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you need prayer, please come forward here. Otherwise, let's head through the lobby and outside. Get to know one another. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. 